Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jordan Neeland, Assistant Professor of Law at George Mason University. We'll be discussing his article, Do Lawyers Matter in Initial Public Offerings, which he co-authored with Thomas Bates and Jen Rocklew. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jordan, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Jordan, one of the most exciting things that can happen for any company is the IPO, the initial public offering. We have these images of the executives ringing in the big bell at the New York Stock Exchange. We have this concept in the pop culture of the pop, i.e. the stock goes public and then it goes up and everybody who owns the stock will be quite happy because their stock is worth more. So there is a lot of romance and excitement around this idea of the IPO. It's referred to as the big dance in some quarters. I wondered if you could talk about before the pomp and circumstance circumstance of the IPO itself, what goes into even getting to that point when a company is going to do its initial public offering? There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes before you actually see a stock traded on a stock exchange. And just to clarify for any listeners that aren't aware, IPO is just short for an initial public offering. Initial because it's the first time the stock's being sold and then public because stock's being sold public. And offering is just another word for selling, essentially. And so the whole point of the IPO is just to raise money for the company by selling the stock and the company that's selling the stock can get some money from investors in exchange for the shares that are being sold. The background to everything that you see up to and leading into the actual trading of the shares on the stock exchange is quite extensive. You have to find the investors, first of all. That's going to require working with various agents. Primarily, when you have a big an IPO, you're going to hire an underwriter, investment bank, essentially, just to go out and help serve as an intermediary to help find investors that can buy shares from the company. Then there's going to be this whole process through which you know, the underwriters are going to be trying to contact investors and gauge their interests and then see what they're willing to pay for shares in a particular company. And we've got this whole sales process going on behind the scenes. And this is all typically a fairly confidential process, and it's subject to a lot of legal restrictions. And this is where the other important agent to the IPO comes in, which is the law firm. You've got to be careful because you're not allowed to actually sell the securities before you have the offering. You have to go through this whole process of registration unless you have some sort of exemption, which is essentially a way of saying the company has to fill out some paperwork and meet certain requirements that are required by the SEC. And this is going to include a lot of little details that you really want to hire an expert to help with. So that's where the role of the lawyer comes in, is helping you navigate all of the ins and outs of the regulation, interacting with the SEC, drafting various documents. In particular, the big document that is going to be worked on a lot is referred to as a prospectus. A prospectus you can just think of as this giant document that will say everything there is to know about a company that's going to be selling shares to be listed on exchange. And so it's going to be like, who's the management of the company? What does the company do? What do they sell? How many shares are going to be sold in the IPO? How many shares are not going to be sold? Who owns some shares? Who do, what does the board look like? And these prospectuses tend to be quite large, dozens, perhaps hundreds of pages of information. 
And the whole notion behind the perspectives is a document that's going to help you sell the shares to these investors. It's going to provide all these disclosures because all these investors that are coming in, they're not going to know a lot about a company because it's the first time that it's selling shares to the public. That means the company's been private before then, which means they don't have to make a lot of disclosures. They don't have to inform the world about what's going on inside the company. So there's a lot of information that these new investors that are going to be buying the shares are not going to be privy to. And of course, if you think about anything that you might buy, you're going to be concerned if you're spending a lot of money on something that you don't really know what its quality is. Classic examples, thinking about the market for lemons with used cars. A new car is always worth more than a used car because new car hasn't been through some sort of crash or hasn't got some sort of problem associated with any of the moving parts. And so as a buyer, right, you're going to be much more leery of buying that used car because you don't have all the information that the seller might have. A similar type of phenomenon with an IPO. These investors, they want to know, is this thing that I'm buying, is this equity that I'm buying, is it going to be worth a lot? Is it going to be worth the amount that I'm going to pay and is it going to even pay off some greater amount future, hopefully. That's the whole point of being an investor. You want to make more money than you're giving up in the short term. And so the investors are going to want to gather as much information as they can. And the role of the regulation here is to help the investors get that information before they're buying the shares. That's essentially the main parts of the background of the IPOs. They're just selling these shares. We've got all these different regulations we need to deal with. We've got this sales process and everything has to happen fairly quietly and over a relatively short period of time. It's a fairly intensive process for all the parties involved. Heading into the IPO, what are some of the risks, whether they're financial risks or business or legal, what are some of the risks that the company might face? And you've talked about two agents, the underwriter and the lawyers. What are the roles of those agents in trying to mitigate the business financial or legal risks that the company might face in going public? There's a whole myriad of different risks depending on which party you're talking about for a company that's selling the shares. The biggest risk that they're going to face ex-ante going into this process, they're afraid of selling the shares too cheaply. So I mentioned that there's this information problem where the investors don't really know what they're buying. They're trying to learn about the company to see if it's going to be a profitable company and eventually pay out dividends and this sort of thing. But the company itself doesn't necessarily know what it's worth either. That's one of the tricky things about this process. And then the company hires this underwriter right, the investment bank to go help sell the shares to investors. And also the underwriter doesn't know necessarily how much the shares are worth. And so that's one of the main risks that the company faces is that they might sell the shares too cheap. Obviously, if you sell something, you want to get as high a price as possible, but then you don't really have a great way to gauge what the appropriate price is. And so what ends up being the case is it seems like the companies tend to sell a bit cheaply. So that way, they can be sure to sell enough shares to get the amount of funds they need to make whatever investments it is. The way that this pricing actually works out is the investment bank will go out and speaking with investors and start gauging what type of prices these investors are willing to pay in terms of quantities, how many shares the particular investor might be willing to buy for a given set of prices. The underwriter goes through this process. It's known as a book building process. They're just going out and trying to figure out how much can we sell these shares for to these investors. And so that's the big risk. The underwriter themselves, there's a lot of literature talking about how one of the risks that underwriter is facing through this process as well as the risk of losing the investment in the future and future deals. If you think about 
what the role of this underwriter is, it's to go and help sell shares. And they're going to do this for not just one client, they're going to have a whole series of clients one after the next, and they're going to be trying to help sell these shares and essentially taking a cut of the amount that's sold. That's how they generate their revenue. And to do this, you want to have these investors keep coming back, especially these large institutional investors that might have lots of money to be able to invest in multiple issues over time. And so the investment bank kind of wants to keep them happy as well. And so they might try to say, sell a bit more cheaply than the company might otherwise prefer because that would make the investor happy. And so there's also this risk that the investment bank faces, which is the risk of losing relations with those investors in the future. So they might want to keep the investors happy by selling cheaply, or they might want to keep the issuing company happy by selling at a relatively higher price. Ex post, one of the big concerns is that there's going to be some potential liability related to these disclosures that are being made to investors being materially misleading or omitting some information that is going to make the information in these disclosures misleading. The way that this risk manifests is through some sort of a shareholder suit in the future. So after the IPO, the company has all these disclosures outstanding. And one of the statements that they make might be wrong. They might say something to the effect, maybe our market isn't very competitive, but then it ends up being quite competitive, something along these lines. So then the shareholders themselves often have the opportunity to sue the issuing company and its managers, and perhaps even the underwriter for damages associated with the misstatement. And so ex post, the company's managers are most concerned about relating to the IPO is litigation from the shareholders or some other wrong party, perhaps. And so this is another thing that they're trying to mitigate. And one of the ways that you might mitigate this risk is to hire the lawyer that can help you navigate all of these disclosures well. And so that way, you can potentially reduce the probability of getting sued in the future. This is one of the things that my co-authors and I look at in our piece is, can we actually see law firms affecting the probability of a disclosure-related lawsuit following an IPO. So we'd see within three years after an IPO, what is the probability of getting sued by a shareholder? Typically, there's two types of claims. One comes under what's called Section 11 of the Securities Act or 10b-5, flows from the Exchange Act. And it's basically the shareholder saying that you said something wrong, you had made a misstatement, and that harmed the value of my investment one way or another. And now they're going to sue for damages, essentially on the difference between what they paid for the shares and whatever the value ought to have been if the disclosures had been correct. So this can, given that there's potentially thousands or even millions of shareholders following an IPO, this can total up to a fairly large sum. So that's another big risk that it's going to be very important. And what we specifically look at in our work is to see if can you observe some variation in the disclosures based off who your law firm is. And we do find evidence that different law firms do use different types of language in these disclosures. And similarly, different law firms are associated with higher and lower litigation rates. And one thing that's really interesting that we find when we are studying the litigation rates associated with different law firms is that there also seems to be a law firm specific effect on the pricing. So if I can just go back to this notion that the issuing company often has to sell shares a bit cheaply. The way that we observe this empirically is you can say, okay, how much did the investors pay for the shares, the initial investors? And now that the shares are traded on a stock exchange, you can see transaction by transaction what people are willing to pay for these shares. And on average, on the first day, the stock price goes up by about 18 to 20%. But that's a huge return. If you think about the S&P 500 index, 
that typically goes up about 7% per year on average versus a one-day return of about 20%. This is what's known as the underpricing phenomenon. It looks like the companies sell shares about 20% less than what they're really worth because one day isn't really enough time for a lot of events to happen to a company. So when we see what the shares are being traded at, that's probably what the investors are actually valuing them at relative to the sale price. That 20% jump represents the discount that's given to the initial investors for taking part in this IPO. And what we see here is that the law firms are actually having on average, are associated with more or less underpricing. So that first day return might be 5% higher or lower, depending on which law firm you're looking at. And so this is pretty interesting because how I just described the pricing process is all about the investment bank going out and talking to investors, learning about prices investors are going to pay. And then the law firm is just working on the disclosures and helping navigate the regulations. They're not really super involved with the actual price. So how is it the law firm could be influencing the pricing in some way or another. And that's where we use what's known as this litigation hypothesis, which is if you think about exposed and ex-ante risks, if you can prevent litigation ex-post, then maybe that helps you get a higher price ex-ante. Right? So how does this work? So there's a feature in the securities laws, it's the wedge that allows this connection to work, which is when you're looking at the damages, you essentially need to show that the disclosure problem that was made push the stock price down in one way or another. So you have to show that there was some sort of a drop. And so if you don't have a drop associated with the price, it's going to be much harder for a shareholder to prove that they had damages. And this is going to be more difficult to bring a lawsuit then. So if you're an issuer, you're a company that's trying to sell shares and you're really worried about litigation, what you might do is sell the shares really cheap. Because if the price is already low, then it really can't go lower. The shareholders can't claim that they were damaged, and then that's going to help prevent litigation. Or conversely, if you can prevent the litigation, then you're not worried about setting a higher price because you're not trying to protect against that litigation. So you might be able to set a higher price, which would mean that your underpricing is less. So your first day return should be less. We do see there's significant variation in underpricing and litigation and disclosure based off of which law firms associated the IPOs. And this is pretty interesting in its own regard. We actually say, like, how important are the lawyers here? Because there's already a long literature documenting that the underwriter that you pick is very important in terms of your IPO outcomes, especially underpricing phenomena. There's not a lot of research looking at the lawyers. There's some notion that maybe the lawyers aren't really doing that much. Maybe they're just there just to, in some sense, rubber stamp that all the regulations have been complied with and just help protect managers by showing that they've done their diligence by hiring the lawyer and ticking all the boxes. But we can actually see these big economic effects. For, in terms of the underpricing, we have a statistical model that breaks down how important are the underwriters, how important are the lawyers, how important are the issuer attributes, thinking of the issuer as the client of the law firm, how much of our model is described by the underwriter when we're looking at something like underpricing or how much of our model is described by the law firm when we think of underpricing. And the underwriters describe about a quarter of the variation that we see in underpricing in terms of what can be detected by the model. And the law firms contribute about 16.5%. So they're not as important as the underwriters in terms of underpricing when we're looking at what are the determinants of underpricing. But a little more than half as much which is still quite large, considering the fact that law firms aren't even directly involved in setting the price. What's the mechanism here between the law firm and what the law firm is doing behind the scenes and an effect on litigation risk as this channel for reducing underpricing? 
our hypothesis is that this is all coming through disclosure quality. So some law firms have a reputation, or at least anecdotally, there's some evidence that some law firms are very comprehensive with the disclosures, and they make sure that everything that could be described about a company is in that perspective. Like the more information there is and the more accurate it is, then the harder it's going to be for a shareholder to bring a lawsuit ex post. And so that's the primary mechanism, drafting these disclosures. And we can see that certain law firms use different types of language. They might use more legalese in some sense, talking about more plaintiff and defendant arbitration. These types of words come up more with certain law firms and others. And so we can see that they're affecting disclosures. And then to tie this all back together, for each law firm, we get essentially a coefficient estimate. How much does underpricing change with this law firm? How much does litigation change with this law firm? For each of our models, how much does disclosure change? And so then we just take these estimates and then we correlate those. We say, okay, let's cut our law firms into two groups. One group is associated with more litigation on average. One group is below median, less litigation on average. This is a quality proxy, but where litigation would be better. So you might say that the low litigation law firms are higher quality. And then we can see that those low litigation law firms are also associated with less underpricing. So it does seem like that litigation is translating into the prices. And then similarly, we can see that the law firms that are associated with less litigation are associated with more disclosure. And so that seems again to be the tie between the pricing and the litigation is that they can do this by influencing the disclosure. And then we also run a separate analysis where we look at the legal fees and expenses that these issuing companies are paying out. And we can see that those low litigation law firms are actually associated with higher legal fees. So it seems like they're getting paid more, paid for their talent in, in short. The more you can deter litigation, all else equal, you should probably be able to charge more for such a service because that's what issuing managers are worried about, especially since it's possible for the managers to be personally liable for the disclosure problems that are going to pop up ex post. If your own money's at stake, not just the company's money, you're probably going to really want to make sure you've got all your bases covered and make sure you have appropriate legal team helping you out. One of the other big roles of the lawyer here is the way that you can help prevent the personal liability for those corporate managers is to ensure that they've developed what's called this due diligence defense. Essentially, if they go and tick all the boxes, make sure all of the information is gathered and disclosed to investors, then the managers are going to be able to escape that personal liability. But the company itself, the corporate entity, is still going to be liable for any misstatement. It's not going to be, at least under Section 11, there's not going to be a great way to mitigate the liability just from doing the diligence. And so that's when it's going to be really important, I would think, to make sure that you've carefully crafted everything so that the accuracy of the disclosure documents is extremely high. Because eventually the company is going to pay as well if there's a problem with the disclosures. So that's our tie-in between the litigation and the pricing. It's a bit of an indirect story, but we do see the evidence there that it's happening through the disclosures, guiding the managers through the legal processes. I'd like to talk about the industrial applications of some of these findings. If I am a company embarking upon an IPO and I'm hiring securities counsel, I want to get good securities counsel that is going to reduce my litigation risk and indirectly reduce my underpricing. If I am a securities lawyer or practice leader, I might want my law firm to get better if it's not among the higher quality law firms in terms of the effects that they're having on the quality of disclosure in prospectuses. If I'm an investor, perhaps 
perhaps I want to know how the quality of the law firm working for the company is perhaps going to affect the value of the securities I'm purchasing down the line. What are the implications for all of those actors and all those constituencies from your paper? Should law firms call you and your colleagues up for some consulting on how to improve or should IPO issuers call you up for some guidance? What should we make of these findings in terms of the goal of reducing litigation risk and reducing underpricing in the market? Definitely open to consulting. (laughs) But no, in terms of the immediate implications, one thing that I want to drive home here is that the amount of savings that you see in terms of pricing here, if you trust our models, the savings of perhaps four, five, seven, eight percent even on underpricing that we tie back to the retention of the lawyer and their drafting skill is quite large relative to the cost of the lawyer. So the legal fees in total for issuing companies are around 1% of the issue size, all the proceeds that are coming in from the sale of the stock. But then if you're saving something like 5 maybe 10% on your pricing, that's a massive ROI. So it does seem that our evidence here is showing that the hiring a good lawyer is a very good deal in terms of what you can potentially expect to save from being able to price a bit higher and prevent litigation in the future. And it's just from the pricing, right? That's also not including any additional cost savings from the reduced litigation. I know this might be controversial, but in our setting, at least the lawyers may even be getting underpaid, but it's a fairly competitive market. So maybe that's part of why lawyers can't capture the full extent of the value that they're adding. But in terms of the disclosure quality itself, it's hard empirically to figure out exactly how you might target some sort of improvement in the disclosures because it's as a empirical researcher, we can't see the misstatements that were never discovered by a shareholder. We didn't go through and read these thousands or millions even of pages of documents to try to figure out there was an error somewhere in there. So we're basically looking ex post and seeing is there litigation and then we're just taking some more quantitative measures of things that we can see readily in these prospectuses, like how much legal terminology is in there and trying to attribute that to the different law firms. We also do an analysis on the prospectuses using a readability or fog index. And the basic idea is that there's a notion that since you want to communicate to investors, you probably want to use just more natural language, things that are a bit easier to read to make sure that there's not any confusion to investors. The flip side of that is that sometimes you might need more complex language if you want to make a more accurate disclosure. And so we do see that there is variation in how readable some of these disclosures are, but we don't really get a sign in terms of whether or not being more or less readable is going to be beneficial or harmful in terms of eventual realization of litigation. Because you can't tell if you're throwing in something complex, is that because you need to be complex and talk about, say, some complex legal issue accurately? Or are you trying to obfuscate things by making things less readable so you can maybe sweep some things under the rug that you don't want shareholders to know about? So really get much there in terms of seeing which direction that would go. It is a bit tough to know exactly how to guide lawyers into drafting these documents to be more litigation-proof in some sense. But just anecdotally, again, just being very comprehensive seems to be the way to go. When courts are coming through these in some of the case law, you'll even see the judges say that this some of the most well-drafted documents, they're unusually comprehensive. This sort of language comes up sometimes. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this discussion and from the paper? And are there maybe future research questions that you or your co-authors might want to pursue in this vein in the future? Just in terms of key takeaways, again, I, the whole 
premise of the project is to find out if lawyers are important. Are they adding value? Or are they just these transaction executioners? They're there just to help get things done. And there's not so much variation, perhaps, in quality or type. We definitely see that the choice of law firm is hugely important for your IPO outcomes, whether that's litigation or disclosure or pricing. In terms of future projects, I think there's potentially a wealth of research to be done in the future. Again, like you were alluding to, what exactly is better disclosure? What does that look like? How can we analyze text at a deeper level and see exactly what sort of things shareholders are likely to pick up on that leads to eventual litigation? How do you help managers mitigate that risk? And also just generally to think more about law firms and their importance in financial markets. We're one of the first papers to do this sort of fixed effect analysis on law firms. There's been similar work looking at this type of analysis with underwriters. And we can see that they're playing this really big role. And the prior research on law firms, whether that's in IPOs or M&A or some other setting with financial markets, has done this relatively simpler analysis where they just say, let's look at who's the big law firm, who's the big reputation law firm. And we're going we're gonna to define this high reputation or high quality law firm essentially by the size of the law. How many deals are they doing or how many lawyers do they have, this sort of thing. Because you tend to think of big law as being the highest quality law firms. And that kind of makes sense. That's intuitive. They recruit from the best schools. You'd expect them to be more talented. But that research only finds a relatively small amount of the effect of lawyers. So there's more going on other than just how big is your law firm? How high quality is it in terms of its size? I think this is one of the key insights of our papers to say that there's actually a lot more going on. And I think it's probably a bit intuitive when you have discussions with people that have worked on securities transactions or have some experience with different law firms, that different law firms have different types of expertise. It's not all just like we're not all playing football and one team's going to win the Super Bowl. You have these specializations and some law firms might be better dealing with high-tech companies. Some might be better with transportation companies and this sort of thing. Picking the appropriate law firm can potentially have a large effect on your firm beyond just what, how big are they? How large is the company? How, where do they fit in some sort of a big law league table? In terms of the research that we're looking at, specific, we're getting into a little bit more of this type of analysis with M&A. And we have another working paper out where we're using these lawyers' influence on litigation to try to develop a new ranking system for law firms, at least within the corporate setting. Because now we can actually observe how good is a law firm at actually reducing litigation. And so we're using this more as a proxy for quality rather than these traditional standard measures of firm size or revenues, profit per partner, this sort of thing, which probably correlated with quality on some level, but doesn't necessarily tell you about client outcomes. Part of this analysis we do in this separate paper about ranking the law firms is to compare it to all of this stuff with U.S. news right now and ranking law schools. And the U.S. news has come under criticisms for focusing too much on things like inputs, like what's the LSAT or GPA of your students, and less so on things like student outcomes. And so we're taking that set of criticisms into account when we're thinking about a ranking of law firms. It's not of inputs, like how big is reputable as a law firm going in in terms of what's going to come out when that client hires that law firm, how well is that client going to do? And that's probably a more parsimonious thing to think about when you're trying to figure out whether or not a law firm is higher quality or lower quality. Our guest has been Jordan Neeland, Assistant Professor of Law at George Mason University. We've discussed his article, Do Lawyers Matter in Initial Public Offerings, which he co-authored with Thomas Bates and Jen Rock Liu. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. 
Jordan, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.